Hello to my listeners. This is Pastor Randy Starkey. I did these teachings on the end times and the return of Christ in several series several years ago when I was pastoring at Victory Church in Peavely, Missouri. One third of the Bible is prophecy, so we really need to be familiar with it, especially as it relates to our soon coming future. Although a few of my comments in some of these messages may be a bit dated, and a few of my ideas are still developing, the truth of God's Word never changes. And there are at least three things that I remain strongly convinced of. All three of these I will touch on in these messages. So number one is this. The prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ were fulfilled literally in real life and in real time. So I have no doubt the prophecies concerning the end times and the second coming of Christ will be fulfilled in exactly the same way in real life and in real time as the Bible describes. I believe it is a huge mistake to spiritualize away end time prophecy. The books of Daniel and Revelation are for sure filled with symbolism, but those symbols represent real events that are going to happen in real time. And it's all getting closer. And number two, I believe God's people will be raptured, caught up to be with the Lord before God's wrath is poured out on the terrible sin and evil in our world. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says Jesus delivers us, not just protects us, delivers us from God's wrath to come. However, I don't believe that will exempt us from Satan's wrath and persecution of true believers and the revealing of Antichrist before the rapture happens. That persecution and pressure we are actually beginning to see happen even now. That is why Jesus said things like we must endure to the end, be ready, watch and pray, don't be deceived, and that we must be about our Father's business and not draw back. And then finally, number three is this. God is not done with Israel. Jesus was Jewish. God loves the Jewish people and the land of Israel. When Jesus returns, that's actually where he's going to land, on the Mount of Olives. There's much to say about Israel and the Middle East, and all of that is coming very fast. And so, I, as I said, I will cover all three of these points in these messages. And these are things that we need not be afraid of when we have surrendered our heart and life to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we're walking close to Him. We have His direction, His guidance, His love, His grace, His power. And the Bible even says, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. However, in these days, we all need to be walking really close to Jesus. And let me say a word to any of you listening today that maybe you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
Maybe you've even been hurt in church, or maybe it's been all religion to you. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And Jesus wants you to know him. He is the only way to have your sins forgiven. He is the only way that you can get to heaven. None of us can be good enough on our own. He is the only way to really experience victory in your life and be prepared for eternity. He left heaven, came to earth, gave his life on the cross for you, shed his blood for you that you could be saved and be forgiven. The Bible says there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. He's the true Savior. So I pray you will open your heart to him, receive him as your Lord and Savior. Allow him to forgive your sins so that you can be ready when he returns. It's really not a pretty picture and there is much to be afraid of because God is God and sin must be dealt with. And so without Jesus, we really are in a world of hurt. So open your heart to him today. Hey, a good way to find out more about that, just go over to our church, Victory Church here in Peavely. And uh, uh, they have an awesome, uh, Pastors Dan and Paige Lord are doing a great job. There's an awesome little book there you can pick up free called Fresh Start. It will give you everything that you need to get you going on your walk with Jesus. So all of this is why we must not only be saved, but be spiritually strong, awake, alert, and serving God. That's why I did these teachings. We have to stay strong in Jesus to know what's coming soon in the end times. And like Noah built the ark to the saving of his household, we must stay close to Jesus in the building of his church because the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that is our forever family. So listen carefully and then check it all out in the Bible for yourself. God's love and blessings to each of you as you dive into these teachings. Amen. Okay, well, I am very excited about um, doing uh, this Bible study because I believe it's very timely. And uh, I think uh, it's a whole subject and particularly a book, you know, that um, that the Lord is beginning to open up to us. And... Um, you know, I haven't, we haven't done a lot of teaching on, uh, on prophecy here at Victory. I did a series on this sometime back. And, uh, you know, Jesus did actually say he doesn't want us to get fixated on it. In Acts chapter 1, you know, he said, uh, you know, to stay filled with the Spirit and be sure you're reaching people. And, you know, not just only become a prophecy buff. So it's more than curiosity. It's uh, knowing what God's doing and how we can better, you know, impact our world. But since we have a whole book of the New Testament, 22 chapters, you know, of prophecy, I somehow think God expects us to know something about it, you know. And I think it is timely. And uh, how many were here for my series on Daniel? Anybody here for my series? Quite a, quite a few of you. If you remember when we ended that series... It ended up in Daniel chapter 12 there where, where the angel told Daniel, he said, Daniel, go thy way. He said, for, you know, it's sealed up till the time of the end. Well, guess what? I think we're getting close to the time of the end. And so what God is doing is beginning to open up some of that stuff and really help us understand what's coming. So 
Uh, we are going to dive into, I'm going to go eight weeks straight through this. Um, I have one week where I have to go up to uh, St. Joseph for a pastor's conference, but I'm actually going to leave a day late. I'll pull out of here and go. So I'm going to go eight weeks straight and not skip a single week. And uh, that way we'll just uh, keep the flow going and, uh, and stay focused on it, okay? So if you would grab, um, and I'm going to try to go right at one hour, you know, uh, at toward, as we get toward the end. We'll see how it's flowing and how much stuff we're covering. And, but uh, I definitely will not go. If, if I cheat a little bit, it won't be much, okay? And uh, because I know get much beyond that, and it's hard to, it's hard to keep receiving, you know? <laughs> so anyway, pull out, if you would, this little overview uh, outline, and we're going to attempt to cover tonight. Obviously, in eight weeks, I can't do a complete verse by verse. Uh, but I don't believe that's, that's necessary. I believe you can get a lot of the revelation out of this book in eight weeks, and then you can maybe dive in a little deeper, you know, on your own. But basically, uh, tonight, I'm going to try to do chapters one to three there. And then, uh, each week, uh, I won't give you the entire breakdown right now. It would just take too much time. But as you can tell, I'm going to be doing a, a couple, three chapters a week. There's one week where I'll maybe focus in on one single chapter because uh, there's a couple of them that are really important chapters. But uh, so we're going to try to get through chapters um, one through three uh, tonight and uh, learn some good things and get going. I would encourage you, uh, if you want to uh, do something while we're going through this, is just, uh, you know, whatever's a good time for you, you can get quiet, is just take the book of Revelation and just kind of read through it, you know. And if you can't get all the way through it in one sitting, then... Do it in two or three or whatever. And do the same thing with the book of Daniel. Okay, same thing with the book of Daniel. And then one other chapter I'll give you is Matthew 24. Because really those, and of course there's parallel chapters to Matthew 24 in all the Gospels. But uh, those three sections are really key uh, to really understanding um, some of the things the Lord wants us to know about uh, the end times. All right? So... I'm glad you're all here tonight. I believe it's going to be good. So let's pray together and we'll just jump into it. All right. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight. Lord, I know they wouldn't be here if they weren't hungering. Lord, to learn more about you, draw closer to you and uh, understand more about your kingdom, understand what you're doing in the earth today. Lord, I know many of them are involved in other ministries and cleansing streams and all kinds of things. So I just pray you refresh them and bless them. We thank you for your promise, Lord, that your spirit quickens our mortal bodies. And Lord, uh, I just pray even as we've come from home or work or wherever, that uh, your blessing and your quickening power and your strength, Lord, that we could hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. That would be on us tonight. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Okay. All right. The book of Revelation was written or penned by the apostle John. It's interesting. John was Jesus's best friend. He was the one who at the uh, 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 last supper there leaned upon Jesus's breast. And um, he was the last of the apostles to die. And uh, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And uh, actually, it's on that little map I gave you there. Uh, the seven churches that he wrote to, you can see Patmos right below Ephesus. It was a Roman penal colony, uh, island of exile. That's where they sent John because, of course, uh, in those days uh, prior to Constantine, you know, the church was, was pretty much persecuted in the early days of Rome, and everybody was expected to worship Caesar. 
you know, and uh, uh, many were martyred because of it. But John was sent to Patmos, and it was there um, that the Lord gave him this revelation of the book of Revelation. And uh, the word revelation literally means unveiling. It means to reveal, and uh, it's the Greek word apocalypse. Oftentimes in the English language, we think of apocalypse as being kind of a scary word. It, 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 I, it really, if you read the book of Revelation, it is a little scary. <laughs> but uh, it, that's not what it literally means. It literally means just to reveal or to unveil. So God did want to um, reveal some things to us and help us understand uh, what is really going to be happening as we get uh, close to the second coming of the Lord. So... Um, now, as let's just pick it up here in um, uh, in chapter one, and let's just read a little bit here, and uh, and then we'll just dive into it. Okay, so picking up verse one there in chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take pre- take place. Now, one thing to notice right away is the word shortly there. Sometimes we think, well, that means it's going to happen in just, you know, a few months or something. Actually, a better translation of that word is swiftly, speedily. And, uh, you know, Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, actually, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, actually calls the whole of the church age the last times. So really, you and I are in the end part of the plan of God. This plan has been going on for thousands of years, all the way from the creation of Adam. We are now getting closer and closer to God wrapping up this whole season and plan, you know, on planet Earth there. So the word shortly doesn't necessarily mean like a couple months from now. It means swiftly. Here's kind of what it means. It means things are starting to move. Things are starting to happen now. And, uh, you know, we're into the church age. And uh, so uh, God gave this revelation so that Christians could understand, you know, what's coming. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So it's like God, the father kind of, you know, he gave this to Jesus. And even though they are co-equal, co-eternal, there still is an order in the Godhead. How many of you know there's an order in the family? You know, there's still, there's an order in the church. There's an order in nations, but God is a Trinity and uh, they're co-eternal and co-equal. But Jesus got this revelation from God, meaning God, the father, to show to his servants, which is you and I, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So Jesus sent this revelation by an angel to John on the Isle of Patmos. It was an angel that actually brought this revelation to Jesus. And um, how many of you know angels are still around today? Yeah, and the Bible says they're ministering spirits sent to minister to us that are heirs of salvation. And so, um, and then verse 2, it says, Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. You know, everything will always agree with the word of God if it's of God. And, of course, everything that's really of God will always exalt Jesus, his son. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of, the, of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So there's a blessing that goes along with this book. There's a blessing if you read it. There's a blessing if you hear it. And then there's a blessing if you keep it. And uh, we, one thing we have to understand about prophecy, prophecy is not just to satisfy our curiosity. 
Okay? It's to really help us understand what God's doing so we can keep His ways and walk in His ways. But there's a tremendous blessing involved when we understand what God is doing. And so the Lord says, you know, we're blessed if we read it and we're blessed if we hear the words of this prophecy. I want you to notice too, it is a prophecy. Okay? This whole book is a prophecy. And so it deals with things future and uh, it does deal with a few things in the here and now. We'll see that in a minute, but it's primarily prophecy that deals with future things. And uh, so uh, let me give you a couple characteristics of the book of Revelation. Number one, it is an unveiling. It's a revealing, okay? So there's a lot we can learn from it. Number two is it is a prophecy, okay? As we said, it's a prophecy. Number three, it brings a blessing, okay? brings a blessing. Number four, it's relevant because it has to do with things that are speedily going to come to pass. And uh, how many of you don't want to know what's going to happen, you know? And so it's, it's a relevant book. It's also a Christ-centered book. Notice that this whole book opens talking about Jesus. So it's a Christ-centered book. It's also a very majestic book. We're going to see many times through this book how we get glimpses into the throne room of God. And we'll see things that are happening around the throne. It's also a universal book. It has to do with the whole world. You can't get anything more relevant or universal than the book of Revelation because it talks about the nations. This book deals with things that are going to happen in the whole world. It's also a climactic book because it deals with the very end, the very end of the world as we know it before God's next age and uh, will, will happen, all right? So uh, one other thing, too, I think I, I didn't mention, is it's a symbolic book. And if you look there in verse 1, it says he sent and signified it. Circle the word signified. That means symbolized it. So instead of just calling Antichrist a dictator, the book of Revelation calls him a beast. How many of you know that's got a little more impact to talk about a beast than just a dictator, see? And so the book of Revelation uses a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism. So we have to have the Holy Spirit help us understand exactly what those various symbols uh, mean in different parts of the book. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not real. They're very real. It's just we have to understand spiritually, you know, the full meaning of those symbols, all right? So as I said, the book is Christ-centered. Let me give you just a couple other thoughts here. In chapters 1 to 3, we're going to see here Christ as the exalted priest and king and head of the church, all right? Chapters 1 to 3, we see Jesus lifted up as the priest, the king, the head of the church. In chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see him as the glorified Lamb of God who reigns on the throne, okay? In chapters 6 to 18, and this is what makes Revelation probably the scariest book in the Bible, we're going to see him as the judge of the whole earth. I mean, he came, his first coming, he came meek, he came mild. I'll tell you, folks, the second coming, he isn't coming that way. It's a whole different ball game. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians don't even fully get a hold of that or grasp it, you know. And I think it would move us and motivate us even to uh, greater evangelism and things like that if we really, you know, grab a hold of that. All right, then in chapter 19, we see Christ coming as the returning, conquering king. He's going to defeat the devil, defeat evil. And then in chapters 21 to 22, we see him as the heavenly bridegroom 
ushering his bride to the heavenly city. And, of course, we know what the bride of Christ is. The bride of Christ is the church, right? And so um, uh, one of the things we're going to see in these first three chapters here is that it opens with the church. So God, God has only one plan, all right? He only has one project. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you want to be in on what God's doing and in on his family, then you need to be part of the church because that's what he's building. That's what he cares about. The Bible says he died for his church. He died for us individually, but also God is a trinity. So he's corporateness in himself. He has relationship in himself. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And so obviously, you know, he he's into relationships and people. And so that's why he loves his church so much. And we'll also see that uh, he's not done with Israel. Because he also loves the nation of Israel. They were his chosen nation. And uh, we'll see how that kind of fits in here in a little bit. And uh, how many of you know Jesus was a Jew? That's right. Okay. So he's not done with Israel. Some people think he is. Some people think that that when the church came into being, that Israel no longer has any significance. Uh, I just want to say, as I study my Bible, I find that not to be true. That he is not done with Israel yet. All right, so um, take a look at um, verse 17 of chapter 1. And Well, b- before we get there, let's read a little more. I just feel like we should. So kind of verses 1 to 3 are an introduction there. And then let's pick it up in verse 4 again. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is just so majestic. I mean, it's so awesome. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. I love that phrase. God always existed. Mind blower. <laughs> he does exist now and he always will exist. You know, uh, I realize that stretches our brains, but revelation opens with a lot of brain stretchers, you know. So God just, he always has been, he is now and he always will be. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, there's not seven Holy Spirits. Seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. And this is where we get a little bit of that symbolism. Seven is the whole idea of the fullness of what God does by his spirit. And in the book of Isaiah, I forget the reference. It's like maybe 7.12 or 2.7 or something like that. It talks about the spirit of wisdom and and, and uh, the spirit of knowledge of the Lord and all that. So it's just, it's not seven Holy Spirits. It's talking about the fullness of the different aspects of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... The firstborn from the dead, I love this next phrase, the ruler over the kings of the earth. How many of you know Jesus rulers over uh, Hinejadab or whatever his name is there in Iran? <laughs> he, Jesus rules over him. <laughs> we don't always see it yet, you know, but I'm telling you, when you read the word of God, you know that Jesus rules over him. Okay, to him who loved us. Is there anybody here that you're glad God loved you? That he does love you. Actually, that footnote there, it puts it in the present tense. He loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's a big part of what the whole New Testament is about, is being set free from the power of sin. Verse 6, I love this. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. How many of you know you're not destined to be some worm, but you're called to rule and reign with Christ? Okay? So, I mean, this book just opens powerfully, just opens majestically, you know. 
And then verse 7 gets even better. Behold, he is coming with clouds. This is like a, uh, just a, a bold declaration of faith. He's jumping ahead 19 chapters here and just kind of telling you what's coming, you know. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. That's talking about, especially about Israel and all the tribes of the earth. It's like a prophetic promise. They're going to receive the true Messiah. Okay, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so then it kicks into another gear in verse 8 where it's actually Jesus speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love that phrase, the Almighty. That means that no matter what we're going to be facing in the days ahead, God is almighty. He has all the power we need. We sing a song called that, all the power you need. God has all the power we need to do whatever he calls us to do, etc. you know. All right, now, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion. Now, this kind of sets a little different stage here than a lot of people are used to, but, but I believe God specifically and purposely kind of sets the stage at the beginning of the book here. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus. So tribulation, that doesn't sound like much fun, you know, and we're going to get into the whole thing. I'm sure a lot of you, a big question you have is when is the rapture going to happen? I'm going to deal with that very specifically in this class, you know, and in this Bible study. But uh, I'll just give you a little sneak preview and say this, all right? I don't believe that the church is going to come out of here at any moment. You know, I, I just don't believe that's true. And we're finding more and more that as, as, as the body of Christ is starting to teach more on this in these days, that there is a, there's a shift taking place in the spirit away from what I would call imminency. You know what imminency is? I don't want to bore you with a bunch of theology, but let me just say it this way. The imminency teaches this, that the rapture can happen right now while I'm standing here. It's, I just don't really believe that. We're going to see some scriptures that say there are some things that have to happen before the church can leave, all right? And uh, I'll be honest with you, particularly in American Christianity, I find it very dangerous to teach the church that you're going to be out of here without ever having one little moment of uncomfortableness. Because what's going to happen to that person if they think that and all of a sudden they're thrown into a place where they got to stand spiritually where they didn't realize they're going to have to? They're in big trouble. So... There is, and you know, actually, do you realize that uh, so the doctrine says it's called today a total pre-tribulation rapture? What actually came on the scene in 1820? Uh, the mid-tribulation rapture theory came on the scene in uh, 50 years later, in 1870. Uh, the post-tribulation rapture—it's been around kind of a long time, but not very well defined. And actually, if you go back to the early church, some of the earliest writings, it wasn't defined at all. There was no no theological names for what they believed. Here's what they believed. They believed God was going to take them out at the right time, but they also believed that probably before they left here, they would have to take some stands of faith and probably walk through a few things. And I'll just be real honest with you. I do not in any way think the church is going to fully become all we have to be unless we can go through a few tests and trials. Any of you, any of you guys work out at the Y or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Any workout? I mean, is there anybody here that develops muscles or gets your aerobics up with no resistance? I don't think so. I don't think so. And the Bible says we're going to be a bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Anybody ever got a wrinkle out without a hot iron or two? 
Anybody ever got a spot out without rubbing a little energy on it, you know? So, you know, I mean, God's purpose is not to hurt us or anything like that. God's purpose, I believe, is this. It's to help us grow, and, and, and it's called a test of faith. So you have some resistance. But I believe the whole purpose of God is, is to show that God in us is bigger than sin or the devil and that we can be victorious. And so, you know, I, I will say this. I don't believe in any way the church will be here when the wrath of God is being poured out because the Scripture says we're not appointed to wrath. And we'll talk about that and how that affects the timing of the rapture. But to say that, you know, every, that we're just going out of here in a plastic bag with a pink bow at every moment, any moment, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. So anyway, I know I've really got your attention and your interest now. And so uh, we will be getting into when all that will happen, you know. So uh, anyway, I, I believe verse 9, though, you know, it opens up with this. I, John both your brother and companion in the tribulation. So we're in a world where the devil is against us. We're in a world where sin, you know, tries to pull us down. So, you know, we know it's coming up to a climactic moment. There's a verse that talks about where the devil will come down and and he'll be angry because he knows his time is short. He's not stupid. He knows prophecy. He actually is going to know when he has three and a half years left. And he's not going to be a happy camper. But, you know, he's so dumb and stupid, he's still going to try to defeat God, even though he already knows what the Word says. You know, and uh, he tried to do it. I said a little bit. This is my life question series. He tried to he tried to pollute the whole human race when when Jesus when the Lord prophesied and said His seed's going to crush your head. So he, the devil will do everything he can to try to stop what God is saying, even though probably deep down he knows he can't do it, but he's still going to try. You know, so you know we know there's going to be as we get closer and closer, things are going to get more intense. And uh, as you read through the Book of Revelation, it's an intense book. You know, and uh, but guess what? God loves us. He's with us. And uh, how many of you know where he guides? He provides, you know, and uh, the Bible says that uh, he never allows us to go through anything that we can't handle. So uh, we just have to look and reach out to him. So there is some tribulation, but also there's the kingdom. What is God's kingdom? It's victorious. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, there's, you know, no pain, no suffering in the kingdom. So no sickness, no poverty. And so actually we can, even though we're facing, it's funny, you can face tribulation on one side and you can be manifesting kingdom power on the other side. You know, they're two, kind of like the two sides of the same coin that I talked about, you know, last Sunday. And also patience. Oh, this is where we sometimes really struggle in America because we want our coffee microwaved in 45 seconds. And if it takes 55, that's too long, you know. But uh, we're going to have to learn to have a little patience and a little faith, not quit, not give up. And, um, you know, probably the, here's a good statement to make. How many of you know anything really worth having that you really appreciate you probably had to work a little bit for anyway, you know? And so we're going to have to stand and manifest the power of God, and, and uh, I believe God, God will help us on that. So that's a very interesting verse. Circle those three words, tribulation, kingdom, and patience, you know? Tribulation is kind of a negative word. Kingdom is a positive word. Patience is just a, it's like a Nike word, just do it. <laughs> you just have to do it. Okay of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That was Sunday after the uh, uh, beginning of the new covenant there. So John was exiled, but somehow he was praying, he was worshiping. You know, how many of you know today your victory is going to come in the spirit? 
It's not just going to become, come by your natural ability or, or whatever God has given you in talents. Those are wonderful things. But things that happen in God that are going to strengthen you are always going to happen in the Spirit. So what was John doing on the Lord's Day? He's worshiping probably, praying. He was a one-man band, you know, whatever. But he was in the Spirit when this happened. When God came to him and gave him the book of Revelation, he was in the Spirit. And that's where you always receive things from God. You know, uh, I'm all for education, you know. I love it. I have two degrees. And you need to always follow the Lord and be led by the Spirit. And, 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 and education is great. But, do you know, they were amazed at the disciples, Acts chapter 4. It says they were amazed. They were unlearned and educated men, but they noticed they had been with Jesus. And so, you know, praise God for education and all that. But how many of you know the strongest thing that's going to keep you is the power of the Holy Spirit and God working in you by the Spirit, see? So John was in the Spirit. That's where he started getting all this. And um, and then all of a sudden he said, I love this. And I heard behind me a loud, everybody say loud voice. See, it's not so bad when it gets loud around here, okay? All right, a loud voice as of a trumpet. So here he is. He's worshiping or praying or whatever he's doing, you know, and all of a sudden he hears this loud voice behind him like a trumpet. And guess who it is? It's actually Jesus speaking to him. And he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He, John may not have heard a voice like this since, maybe since he actually heard the last words of Jesus when he ascended. You know, I mean, uh, I'm sure he's had other experiences with the Lord, but this had to be a pretty dramatic experience, you know. And uh, so, and we'll see how it goes here. Watch this. Uh, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, now here comes the instruction of the Lord, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven, what? Churches. God always brings his word to the church. Okay, you know, he doesn't bring his word to the world. He brings his word to the church, and then we go and minister it to the world. He's building his church. He loves his church. And uh, that's where you can always get fresh stuff from God. So write it in a book. Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. These are probably churches that John the Apostle had personally been involved in ministering to. You know, the Apostle Paul... Of course, he ministered in Galatia and Corinth and all kinds of different places. These are probably churches that John had a specific relationship with. And so it was just natural, I think, for Jesus to have him send the book to them. And, of course, we know the book has spread all across, you know, the whole church and, and the whole world, of course, through, through that. But it was only natural because those were the churches that John had been closest to. All right, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, now watch this vision here that he has of Christ. He's not only hearing from Jesus, now he's starting to see him. And this is a, all of a sudden now, we are seeing a totally different Jesus than what we're used to seeing in the first coming. I just want you to get a feel for this, all right? And in the midst of the seven, he had seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, and so we'll see that these seven lampstands are pictures, uh, are symbols of the church, and Jesus is in the midst of them, okay? Where is Jesus on the earth? He's in the midst of his church, okay? He's in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now watch this, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. I mean, all of a sudden here, this is different, isn't it, than Jesus' first coming? 
where he just had a simple robe, you know, and he walked about as just a, a man to minister to people and love people and, of course, die for us. But now we have a little different different situation here. Clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a gold mat. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Whew, that's, a, that's, a, that's different, isn't it? I think the white like wool has to do with like he's the ancient of days. There's a there's a mirror vision of that in um, Daniel chapter ten or seven. I forget which. You can write it write that down. But his hair being white like well, he's the this this is this is God Almighty here. This is God the Son in His fullness. All right, He's died now. He's paid the price for sins. Now He's coming to judge. This is the Ancient of Days, full of wisdom, white hair, full of wisdom, knows everything. The Ancient of Days understands he His word is it. He, he knows what's good and what's bad. And uh, his eyes are like a flame of fire. They're penetrating. The eyes of the Lord are coming. He's going pen- to judge the earth here. This is the vision we're getting. He is coming back. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's scary even for the church. <laughs> it's, I mean, we're covered by the blood, and it's still scary, <laughs> you know. I mean, just a whole different picture here of Christ than the first coming. That's a whole way the book of Revelation is. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They're just penetrating. Verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And brass and the refining of brass, again, has a whole idea of judgment and purification. And so he's coming back with a whole different thing here. And his voice is the sound of many waters. Anybody been to uh, Niagara Falls? You get next to that, it's so loud, you sometimes can't even talk. It's just... His voice is like the sound of many waters. Woo, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? And so um, he had in his right hand seven stars. Now watch this. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. What is that? What is that? The Word of God. And the unique thing about the Word of God is when it's preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and it's combined with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God always should be combined with the Holy Spirit. Same way when God created the world, it said, said the Spirit of God brooded over the over the, over the, um, you know, the world, and then he spoke. And so uh, when you take the Word of God and you disjoin it from the Holy Spirit, you end up with kind of religion or legalism. But when you join it with the Holy Spirit, it's powerful. The Bible is like no other book. Amen? We used to do this thing in downtown St. Louis when we were a little younger. I was a little crazier. And uh, we'd go down there and we'd witness the people walking on the street. And we'd take a little Bible and we'd, we'd put it under a hat, you know, and then we'd start walking around the hat going, it's alive! It's alive! <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden we'd pull the hat off and they'd see that Bible. And we'd pick it up and we'd say, this is a living book! It's got God's Word in it! It will help you, you know. So anyway, it's true though, you know. It's, uh, there's nothing like the Word of God combined with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It brings revelation to help you really, you know, it, it'll, it'll break down worldly thoughts in your mind and help you be able to see clearly what God is saying. And... uh it builds faith in your heart. It does all kinds of things. So out of his mouth went a sharp uh, two-edged sword. You know, the sword will cut away things that will hold us back. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I mean, this is a powerful Jesus. It's, it, it's, it's almost like you remember when the, uh, Peter and those guys went on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw it was, he was so bright they couldn't hardly look at him. That was, a, that was like a forerunner of what you see here. 
You know, he's, he's got, it's, it's like the sun, you know, just shining bright and, and revealing everything. All right, now look at verse 17. This is where I really want to get to on this. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. So I want you to see this whole book of Revelation, not just as a prophetic curiosity, like what's going to happen? No, I want you to, I want you to get a hold of the wonder and the majesty of what's going to happen when Jesus shows up again on planet earth. I mean, I mean, the more I read this book, the more I kind of feel like doing that falling on my face. You know, it's just, it's awesome, you know, but look at what the Lord does. He just, he just, uh, he does a beautiful thing here. He says, he, he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hades is the place where, you know, was the abode of the dead, Abraham's bosom where he led captivity captive. Jesus says he has the keys of that. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to be stuck down there with, you know, people that have not known the Lord. And, you, and not only that, but how many of you know you're not going to be bound by death? You get a brand new body. So Jesus has the keys to all of that. So John, he had kind of the right response there. He was a wanderer and a worshiper. So as you study prophecy, let me encourage you to let that happen to you. Be a wanderer and be a worshiper. Don't just be, you know, don't be disconnected and try to treat it as some little... This is not an academic study. You know, we're going to learn a lot, but it's not an academic study. It's really, it's really drawing closer to the Lord and really understanding, you know, what it's going to be like when he comes back. So that's the way John was. I think that's the way God wants us to be. And uh, then the Lord, you know, of course, put his hand on John. Really encouraged him. And then in verse 19, he says, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. That's actually a mini outline of this book. Okay? Watch this. Write the things which you have seen. Okay? That he just saw an awesome vision of Jesus, right? So he's, he's writing that. Okay, the things which are... That's going to be chapters 2 and 3 when he writes to the churches, okay? And the things which will take place after this, which is chapters 4 to 22. So we literally have three, have many outline of the whole book here, okay? The things which you have seen, chapter 1, that's his vision of Christ. The things which are, that's the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, which is chapters 4 through 22. Now, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, commentators differ on this, and I'm not sure I have the exact answer on this, but some feel the angels are pastors of churches. That the Lord is bringing his word to the pastor. That's a pretty good you know, pastors are called to be leaders. They, they're not better than anybody else. They just have a unique calling. They're called to be leaders, you know. One of the questions I got on Live Questions, which, you know, I probably won't have time to answer it because I'm, I'm doing Aliens and a few other good ones this Sunday. But anyway, um, is, you know, do, do you really need the church or can I just read my Bible and pray? My answer to that is very simple. Yeah, you got to have the church because Jesus brings his word to the church. And the messengers, whether it's pastors or whether it's angels that supernaturally 
strengthen the church and bring revelation to the church, it really doesn't matter. Some commentators feel those messengers are actually angels, like a, like a guardian angel that God gives specifically to each church. That's not a bad deal either, is it? I think I'll take them both. <laughs> you know? So, but, uh, so whatever, regardless of what it is, we see here that Jesus has a deep desire to communicate with his church. So the seven stars are the seven, uh, are, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Well, what does a lampstand do? A lampstand brings light into the darkness. And that's what you and I are to do. We're to bring light to a dark world. We're to help people come to know Christ. We're to help people come to know the love of God. We're to help people get saved. And so those lampstands are the seven churches. And then, uh, and I'll, I'll just, we'll do what we can here in the time we have on these seven churches. There is an outline here. If you got this little thing here, the uh, seven churches of the apocalypse, these are the seven churches in the next two chapters that John writes to. And actually, this is a map of where they are. And so you can see how they're kind of in the same, phys- roughly the same physical area. This is where John ministered. Okay. John, before he was exiled, um, to Patmos, he actually traveled and ministered, you know, to these churches. And so, um, you know, it's very real and um, very, very significant. Now, before I jump into a little bit, and then when we wrap up this whole thing, and I'll, 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 uh, I'll leave enough time for this, I'm going to skip into a thing here on the back of this overview on some key, I'm going to set a stage for you and how we're going to look at Revelation. But let's talk about the churches for just a minute. Let me say this once again. Isn't it interesting that the Lord opened the book of Revelation by speaking to churches? Now, why is that? Because he wants us to understand he works through the church. Okay? That's what he works through. That's why it's so important for churches to be healthy and churches to be strong. That's why it's so important to have good leadership. It's, it's why it's so important for, for all of us to pull together as the church because that's how Jesus works in the world is the church. And actually, of the seven churches here, only two did he not, well, challenge. <laughs> okay, only two did he not give them some word. He encouraged them all, but there was only two of them that he actually didn't say something where he wanted them to change or grow. And so, hey, we live in an imperfect world, you know. We, we know sin and the devil are out there. And is there anybody here who's arrived yet? <laughs> so we're still growing and we're changing, you know. And so um, I think the whole idea here of the Lord opening this book with the churches is that he wants us to be ready. And he wants the churches to be strong. And he wants us individually to be strong. But he wants us to see here that happens as we walk together with God. And so I think it's very significant that he opened with the seven churches. Now, different people feel different things about the seven churches. First of all, number, point number one, write this down. They are seven real churches. They were seven real churches with the literal problems and the literal needs that, are, that we read about here. Okay? But also, just like the book of Revelation is a prophecy, there is prophetic overtone about the seven churches. And, for instance, just to give you one example, take a look at um, chapter 3, verse 10. One of the things that Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, he said, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That doesn't sound like something happening right then, does it? It's prophetic. See, 
he's dealing with the church of Philadelphia and encouraging them and, and strengthening them and challenging them right now. But there's prophetic overtones. So we could say it this way. The, the, the seven churches also, rep, there, there's truths there that can help us. All right? There's a prophetic overtone to the seven churches. Another aspect of the seven churches, which I think is a, is a, is a very good possibility too, is they, they represent the church down through the ages. And if you look at Ephesus, which is the first church, they were beginning to lose their first love. And you see, the, the early church was born in power and glory and the, the book of Acts and all that. But it's just like, we know, we know we're all human, you know. And if we don't keep the fire of God burning in our life, it's real easy to, you know, get a little cold, you know. Or, so if you don't press forward, you tend to slide back. You know, it's hard to just say, stay still. So the book of, it kind of fits history. Also, the last church in this list is the church of Laodicea, which is a very self-satisfied church, you know, and they're materially wealthy, but what they didn't realize is spiritually they were naked. And today we have more prosperity in the world today. There's a lot of poverty too, you know, but still like in America and many other parts where there's more prosperity, more technology, more comfort, more convenience. When you guys say amen to that, than there ever has been in the history of the world. So Laodicea really fits some things that we got to be careful of, you know, that we don't fall into in the end times. So these are seven literal real churches that John was writing to, but I believe the Lord intends them for more than that. He wants us to prophetically grab a hold of and learn from you know, the issues, the, the issues that are in these churches are not just for those seven churches back then, but they're for us now, okay? And also, I think there is a good possibility those seven churches represent some of the stages the church has gone through in history, and we can learn from that too, okay? So um, let's just take a look at a couple of them. I'm not going to have time to, to do them all, but let's just take a look at, at a couple of them. Let's pick up Ephesus first of all, and uh, in chapter 2 there. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, okay, and this could, again, it could be the pastor or the angel who's strengthening the church, bringing revelation, whatever, doesn't matter, he just, he gets the truth to us. These, th- these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he's reaffirming his presence in the church, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So he's encouraging him and commending him for some things there. But look at verse 4. He's got a challenge for him. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so... They, had, they were starting to get religious. They were starting to get works-oriented. They had learned a lot. They had grown a lot. But they were starting to just get works-oriented. And actually, it says they tried those that said they were, were apostles and were not. So you could sort of say it this way. They had separation, but they had lost their adoration. Let's go back to the whole idea of Christianity. What is Christianity? It's not a religion. It's a relationship. What is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so really, you know, it's possible to, you know, uh, have some good works, you know, and, and even be doing some things right, but yet still 
have uh, lost our first love. It's po- or here's another way of saying it. It's possible to even have some purity but have lost your passion. So, hey, what can we learn from that? Just let's not let it happen, right? <laughs> let's stay on fire for God, amen? Let's be a church that loves God with all of our heart. Let's be a worshiping church. Let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that, that is not, a, I mean, you know, just think what your wife would think if you just never came home and kissed her. She's going to get tired of you pretty fast. I mean, if you love somebody, you're going to express it, you know, sooner or later, I hope. You've heard, the, you know, the guy that said, well, when we got married, I told you I loved you. If it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> uh-uh, no, no. That's like religion. <laughs> That's not relationship. <laughs> no, you you have to express some love, and and it's got to really be there. Can't just be going through the motions. Can't just be churchianity, you know. It's got to be a living, passionate, loving relationship with Christ, you know. And so Jesus gives them, he gives them the answer that he gives to every church. Remember, therefore, uh, from where you have fallen, repent. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Repent, you know. You know what? Repent is not a negative word because it will always bring you into something better. Okay? It's not a negative word. In the book of Acts, it says, God granted them repentance unto life. When you repent and turn from whatever's negative, turn to God, you get life. You know, you know, it's not a negative word. It's a good word. Okay? Repent and do the first works. You know what the first works were? I think the first works are like kissing your wife. <laughs> the first works are, are making sure you, your relationship with God is good. Making sure your relationship with God, you got some fire in your bones. You, you, you love God. You've got a real relationship with him, you know, where there's a flow between him and you where you have a quiet time and where where the first works, you know. Ministry should flow out of our relationship with God. I've had that happen to me before where I, I got so – I've fallen into this thing right here at Ephesus, you know, where I got so busy doing ministry that I got blah, you know. Why? I let my relationship sag. So what did I have to do? Repent and do the first works. <laughs> Come back, you know. Let the fire get back in there. Let the Let the joy, you know, let the – the peace and the pain. Sometimes, you know, if you've been away from it for a while, I'll tell you what, it can sometimes be a little tough to get started again. But that's all right. Just get going. If you're not used to having a regular quiet time, start with five minutes. It's kind of like you don't go to the YMCA and jump on the stair stepper at level six for one hour to start. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, or you don't get on, what is it, Tim? You don't get on the, the whatever that thing is, that half hour of bike thing that you do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it takes a little while to get your legs feeling good when you're standing up, right? <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you what. But, you know, every little bit of progress you make, you feel better. So it's like as you draw closer to the Lord, you know, um, you just, it, it starts to flow out of relationship. Then the power's there and the direction's there and just, you know, all kinds of stuff. All right. And he says here, repent and do the first works. Now watch this. This is kind of scary. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what God is saying is, he's saying, he said, look at it. If you don't come back to me, I'm just going to take my presence out of there. Come on, folks. How many of you know, I hate to say this, but how many of you know there's even a lot of churches, even in America, where the presence of God is just not there? Jesus is saying, repent. Do the first works. Come on. I'm with you. I'll help you. You know? But, uh, uh, I think some churches are afraid of the presence of God. You know, it's just we have to allow 
him to, to fill our hearts and, and fill our lives. Okay, so that's Ephesus. Man, there's some great lessons there, isn't there? All right, so, and uh, this whole thing here um, in verse 6, it says, But this you have, he's commending them here, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That was kind of a, uh, a cult in that day. It was false doctrine. Um, they were just off, you know. And, uh, so, and, and, you know, that'll happen. In the, it'll happen in the body of Christ. It'll happen in the world. There'll be weird little things that go on out there and, and weird cults like that. There's a cult in Japan that tried to b- blow up things, you know, and, and, um, or that guy, what was that, that, that polygamous guy that's been on TV, you know, and stuff like that. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things like that, that, that float through the world. But Jesus commended them that they were holding fast to the pure word of God. They were holding fast to the, to the good solid word, you know. And so, uh, actually, scholars don't know specifically what, um, the Nicolaitans actually believed other than that they know, uh, some scholars feel, if you go back to, I'm not going to go there, but go to Acts 6, 5 when you have time, one of the early deacons in the church was named Nicholas. They feel he was a guy that got off. How many of you know, unfortunately it's true, but how many of you know sometimes there are people that get off? You know, and so we just have to be aware of that. But uh, anyway, so they, but they were, they were uh, careful not to uh, be caught up in things that, that, you know, were not from God. Then verse seven, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So again, two key things are spirit and churches. It's not going to happen by just our own mental abilities. It, we're going to stay on the right track by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to speak to the churches. The Bible says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. That will, a good, solid, healthy church will always, you know, that's hearing God and listening to God will, will stay on track and, and the, uh, the blessing of God will be there. And so it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so churches that are listening today, they'll keep that first love. And then I love this too. And this is true of that verse seven there is said for every church. God so emphasizes this. He says this after every church. He that has an ear to hear, let, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He says that to every church. And then he says this next phrase to every single church. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. One of my favorite phrases, a phrase that Pastor Ted Haggard of Colorado Springs uses, and he uses this phrase, that we should be a life-giving church. I believe that with all my heart. We're not to be a dead religious place. We're to be a place where the tree of life gives the life of God to people that are in need. Amen? That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to be eating of, the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not just brain power. Spirit power. God power. You know? And so the Lord says here, hey, if you come back and do those first works, I'm going to let you eat the tree of life. You'll be a life-giving church. A church that makes a difference in people's lives, you know? And, And so... uh but I want you to also notice this. It says, to him who overcomes. So this is an aspect of the book of Revelation. It's a little different than any other part of the New Testament. It says, to him who overcomes. So listen, we can't be passive. We can't just say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Everything's going to work out all right. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, God's purposes will be fulfilled, but you might be in the mud. You know, that's not where God wants you. How many of you know God wants you to have his strength and power and to experience all he has for you? And he wants it for every church, too. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. doesn't mean we won't stumble and all that. But uh, the Bible says the righteous may fall seven times, but the Lord, what, upholds him. So if you keep looking to God and you say, you know what, bless God, I'm going to overcome no matter what. With God's help, 
I can overcome every obstacle that the world or the devil or anything throws at me. And with God's help, I can overcome. Amen? You know, we're not talking here necessarily about if you don't overcome, you lose your salvation. But we're talking about experiencing God's victory. You know, experiencing all he has for you. And so in Revelation, this is a whole new phrase to him who overcomes. And I'll tell you, we get, we get closer to the coming of the Lord. Antichrist shows up on the scene and everything we're going to study in the next chapters comes forth. We're going to need to be overcomers because if we don't, it'll be like a freight train run us over, you know? And so I'll tell you what, I don't know about your Bible. My Bible says greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So we can all be overcomers. And first John five, four says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So put your faith and your confidence in God. Purpose, that no matter what, you're going forward with Him, you'll overcome. All right, so, well, I, uh, in the interest of time here, I'm not going to, uh, I did one church out of seven. <laughs> so, the rest of them, you do, <laughs> okay? But, uh, I mean, there is, there is some great things. Philadelphia is a great church. They're a church of brotherly love. And I did mention, skip to the very last church, Laodicea. I just want to mention one thing about that church. And, uh, this is a church, again, that was very, they're very wealthy, had, had a lot of things, but they, they were a little bit like Ephesus. Instead of, except though, in putting it in terms of love, he puts it in terms more of passion. And he says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Everything's together in the natural. And do not, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh my gosh. He's talking spiritually, see. Spiritually. You can have everything in the natural. You can be together. And how many of you know you can still be hurting for certain spiritually? So in, in, we have to be careful in the end times here that we don't just only look at the natural world and just be satisfied with that. God's not against that. How many of you know God's got a prosperity? He'll bless you, but you want to make sure that you do this next verse here. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. That means you're covered with the righteousness of God. You're walking in his righteousness and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You're anointed with the Holy Spirit. You can see what's happening. You know what to go and where to do by the power of God. You're not just caught up in trying to just do it in your own natural mind, see? Verse 19, I love this. As many as I love, are you, you believe God loves you? <laughs> as many as I love, I rebuke and, ch- I, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous. Everybody say zealous <laughs> and repent. So, you know, and the whole teaching here is this. Be passionate for God. You know, press into things spiritually. God wants to bless you materially too, but press into things spiritually. Be passionate for the Lord and press into that and, and grow and increase and experience all that he has for you. And uh, in, in this particular city, the cold or hot, a lot of people think that cold means sinful. It doesn't. In this city, they had a shortage of water. That water was very scarce in this city. And so they had to go to special effort to get cold water, and they actually had to go to special efforts to get hot water. And so he was actually talking about things going on in the city. And he was saying, I wish you were cold or hot because cold water is what? Refreshing. Hot water is useful. Lukewarm water is useless. (laughs) 
So half-hearted Christianity is useless. Either be refreshing or be on fire. Just have something going from God, okay? And that's, that's the teaching of that, of that uh, church. All right, I can't, I don't have time to go into the others. Let's wrap it up with this. Take your little sheet here and uh, flip it over after the uh, overview, if you would. And I want to talk just a little bit about the whole basis of this book. Then turn to Revelation 20. Skip all the way to near the end of the book, to chapter 20. And uh, this is the whole basis of what we call, you know, the earthly kingdom or the millennial kingdom. Let me just read a few verses. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And there's a couple other times in here it talks about a thousand years. Underline thousand years. Now, this is the whole idea that as Jesus returns, he is going to establish his earthly kingdom. Okay? And uh, that he's going to actually rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, take a look at that first sheet there. There is three views that have historically been put forth by various Bible scholars over the centuries. And real quickly, the, I'll give them to you. The amillennial view is that the thousand years is not literal. It's spiritual. And it's really talking about that throughout the whole New Testament age, because of what, what Christ did, Satan has been bound. And, and he's, Jesus is not going to really literally establish a... Uh, millennial kingdom, but we'll just kind of all go to heaven when it's all over. Uh, less and less people are believing this. This kind of came to being uh, around two or 300 A.D. Augustine was a big proponent of it. Uh, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, still today hold very strongly to this. But here's the real problem with it, I believe. It over-spiritualizes the Word of God. It takes, when God says a thousand years, they say, no, it's not really a thousand years. You know, it's really the whole New Testament time. Pretty soon, Israel isn't Israel. Pretty soon, Satan being bound is really not literally being bound. It's just through the believers. You know, what happens is it just over-spiritualizes the Word of God. It does, it takes the symbolism. Remember I told you Revelation is a book of symbolism, but it takes the symbolism and so takes it out of the literal realm that pretty soon it over-spiritualizes it and you don't know what you got. Okay, that is a view that historically was put forth, but it is a fading view. The second view, the post-millennial view, is that what's going to happen is that gradually the church is going to become so powerful and so strong, you know, and, and the gospel is going to go around the world so much that we're going to bring in a golden age on the earth, and then when the church has finally straightened the world out, isn't that funny? When the church has finally straightened the world out, then Jesus will come. This is also a view that is fading. Things like World War I and World War II caused it to fade rather quickly. And it's really a, a passing view. The most common view today, which I believe is the correct view, is what's called the premillennial view, which means literally this, that Christ is going to come back, as the book of Revelation teaches, prior to Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. That Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years as Revelation 20 teaches. And then Revelation 21 and 22, we will see at the end of the millennium where God creates a whole brand new heavens and a new earth. 
But there is a major purpose for Christ coming back to rule in the millennium, and we'll see some of that. That is what's considered the uh, predominant view right now. So the only real question comes in is how does the church get out of here you know, before Christ comes, or do we, do we, uh, do we t- get out of here totally before Daniel's 70th week? And I'll show you the next sheet in one second. Do we get out of here in the middle of it? Do we get out of here in the end of it? I mean, how does it all happen? I'll be honest with you. I think Revelation makes it very clear. I don't think it's really that hard to figure out. And I think one of the reasons why perhaps it's getting a little easier to figure out is because we're getting closer to it. And it's easier to see it. And what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12 is that the book was sealed up till the time of the end. Well, guess what? As we get closer to the time of the end, God is opening it up. And so, and now, I, this is like, you know, in my live question series, this is one of those non-essential things. Okay? This is not, this, you don't have to believe any one of these things to be a Christian. You know? Like I said, when you get to heaven, you'll find out I'm right. But it's just... <laughs> You know, these are not things that, you know, you can be amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. Uh, I really don't care. You know, you're still welcome. At Vic- you might even be panmillennial. You guys know what that is, don't you? It's all going to pan out in the end. So, but <laughs> I believe that's a little too nebulous, and I think it's a little bit better to look at the Word of God and try to see what's there. And so um, the premillennial view, conservative, evangelical believers, more and more, that is the position they take. Now, they do vary widely on when the rapture will take place, and we'll have fun talking about that in the, in the weeks ahead. Flip over one more sheet, and the whole thing here is, for those of you that were in my study on Daniel, uh, you know that there was a prophecy in the book of Daniel that there would be 69 weeks of years, which 69 times 7 is what, 483 or something like that, and uh, it was fulfilled exactly to the year when Christ came and was crucified. But in the book of Daniel, it said there was 77s determined. So what happened to the last, quote, week? What happened to the last seven-year period? You would naturally think it would just happen, you know, because it said 77s had been determined to the coming forth of the kingdom. Well, seven years after Christ died, you know, all of a sudden, you know, sure, the kingdom sure hadn't come. Well, here's the thing. Those 77s relate to Israel. You've got to understand the prophecy in Daniel's time was given to Israel. Well, we've had this giant little interlude called the church age. Now, how many of you are glad it's not just Jews that can get saved, but you can get saved too? Aren't you glad, you know? And the mystery is that the whole work of God was opened up not just to Jew, but Jew and Gentile. So that's what we call the church age. But... We also know that the Jews actually rejected their Messiah. But God still loves them, and he's not done with them. And so when the Bible talks about in the, in the book of Luke, I think it's chapter 24, the times of the Gentiles are going to come to an end here as, as we draw closer, and then God is going to uh, work with Israel once more. And guess what? That will happen during Daniel's 70th week. Now, the big question is, are we here for part of that? Well, we'll get into that. <laughs> we will get into that, and uh, we will see some things that happen. So if you take a look at that diagram there, the 69 weeks were up to Calvary. Then you have the church age, and then when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, we switch gears, and we go into Daniel's 70th week, and Daniel's 70th week commences when Antichrist, we'll see all this, makes a covenant with Israel. And it's going to look really good at first. 
but it's going to turn really bad three and a half years later. And I'm telling you, folks, you start reading some of these chapters, the whole deal is going to get really hot here in the years ahead. <laughs> it's going to get really hot. And so the question is this, you know, from our standpoint, because we're Gentiles, most of us, you know, I mean, and, and even Jews, of course, today that, that are saved, they're part of the church too. But there's many, many Jewish people that, that don't know Christ yet, you know, and, and God is going to touch the nation of Israel. But uh, we need to know for our standpoint as a church, how do we fit into this, you know, and uh, wh- what's going to happen? How many of you can just sense, you know, without even before we get started in the whole, how many of you can just sense some of the things that are happening in the Middle East around Israel are just getting us closer and closer and closer? Yeah, you just feel it in your bones. You feel it in the spirit. Well, that's some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. We're going to be taking a look at, at how all of this uh, fits together, okay? So, yeah, six minutes late. That's not, not too bad, I guess. All right, you get something out of that today? Hallelujah. So one of the big things we can certainly learn from this opening section is to be the kind of church that God wants us to be. That way we'll be prepared, and that way we'll be ready, and we'll have the power and strength of God and... Uh, Instead, that day will not overtake us like a thief, as the Bible says, but we'll be ready, okay? Hallelujah. Father, thank you for this night. Bless my brothers and sisters. Give them a great trip home, great night's sleep, great day tomorrow and the next day. We thank you. You're on the throne, Lord. We give you all the glory. You have all things under control. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, God bless you.